that despite everything that went a different way than the way that I wanted it to go, that I get to decide how I want to tell this story to myself. And because of that, I get to feel confident and empowered by the way that I've handled the entire thing. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. On today's episode of the Find Your Voice podcast, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach. First of all, you're going to notice that there's no guest on the podcast today. It's just me talking. And I'm going to answer a question that I've gotten mm, a dozen or so times, maybe a few more times than that on Instagram lately, that I thought you might like to know the answer to. I'm going to tell you a story from my personal life. And I'm also going to talk about how I've used a tool like writing to contextualize this story and to reframe it for myself so that I can feel really empowered by the story rather than feeling what I felt in the beginning, which was kind of deflated and disappointed and like maybe I had failed. So I'm really excited to share this with you. You need to know that this episode runs a little bit longer than our episodes typically run. It's about an hour, but at the end of the day, I hope it's going to be worth it for you. I hope you'll enjoy listening. I hope you enjoy hearing this very personal story from my life, and I hope that you'll go pre-order a copy of my latest book called The Power of Writing It Down, A Simple Habit to Unlock Your Brain and Reimagine Your Life. I'll talk more about the book in the episode. All right, let's dive right in. Hi there, everyone. Okay, I've gotten a bunch of questions, or at least a handful of questions from people on Instagram wanting to know if I would tell the story of my daughter's birth. So for those of you who don't know, I gave birth to a little girl on July 25th. Her name is Nella Elizabeth Ford. She's perfect and beautiful and wonderful in every way. Um, the birth experience was, what? how do I say this? It was intense. I'll call it that. It was other things too, which I'll get into as I tell the story, but because several of you have been asking, I just thought actually this might be the best medium to tell the story, and I want to not just tell the story of the birth, but I also want to talk to you about how I use a process like writing to help me with an experience like this, because the story that you're about to hear, um, and I'll use this as my opportunity for a trigger warning, is like I said, it's intense. There are points when maybe it was a little too intense, <laughs> almost traumatic at certain moments. So there may be some of you listening who don't love to listen to birth stories, period, because just TMI. And there may be some of you listening who just would prefer not to listen to this because it might be triggering for you, specifically if you're a woman who's had a traumatic birth yourself. So just putting that out there ahead of time, but I wanted to just give you all a little window into my life and talk to you about how the birth with Nella went and and then also tell you how you can use a tool like writing to help you frame and contextualize a story like this. First, a couple of things that you need to know as backstory to the birth story. Number one, you need to know that 
I used a birth class. I'll leave the name of it out because whether you have a positive or negative impression of this birthing class doesn't really make a difference, but I'll just tell you it's helpful for context to that. The birth class that we used uses these meditative techniques to help you reframe your idea of birth before you even go into it. The idea being that a lot of us have these cultural conceptions or ideas about the birthing process that it's, you know, the most terrible pain you've ever experienced in your life. And it's going to be this scary time. And the idea behind this childbirth class is that birth does not have to be that way. Birth can be this beautiful, transformative experience for a woman. It's a rite of passage. It's this partnership that you have with your baby, something that you get to do with them. And so the birthing class focuses on that idea of a peaceful, positive healthy, natural birth experience. The birthing class also really emphasizes that a lot of the medical interventions that we use for childbirth in the 21st century, in modern Western culture, that we cut to that chase really quickly sometimes, and maybe we don't need to. So they focus on more alternative methods. They focus on doulas and midwives and a woman really like, you know, having this spiritual transformative experience of birthing her child. They also completely, and this, the reason I picked this, you'll, you'll understand this in just a second. They also focus on reframing the experience through changing the language that you use about childbirth. So you can see why I was drawn to this, because this is exactly the work that I've done with myself and with other writers through our Find Your Voice workshops with a tool like writing, that it's an incredibly effective way to alter the way you think about or see an experience when you can change the language that you use to talk about it. So for example, with this birthing class, they don't say a word like contraction. They call them birthing waves. And so you talk about like you have these pressure waves that come over you and they're helping the baby to move down the birth canal. And you don't have to think of it as this like terrible contracting thing. You can think of it as a pressure wave that's moving your baby in the direction that they're supposed to go. So that's just one example of many examples of how this particular approach changes the language around childbirth. The other thing that you need to know is that I used a technique that I often use in my own life and with other writers for the birth experience where I wrote the birth story ahead of time. So it's pre-scripting is what it's called, but you can write a story of something, like let's just say you have a big meeting at work that's coming up and you're pretty nervous about it. You can actually sit down and write out the story, your dream version of how you would like for this meeting to go, including all of the most basic details. So what you feel like when you wake up in the morning, what the weather's like outside, what you do first, you know, who's going to be in the room at this meeting, what they say, what they don't say. You can write out word for word, you know, how your ideal way of how you would like it to happen. And then you can read and reread that script, the prescript over and over and over again. And it has a way of priming your brain for what's to come so that you can be more likely to experience more of those elements. Now, I've used this technique with myself hundreds of times, and in every other occasion, it's worked much better (laughs) than it worked this time. So I'm telling you that because I really want you to start to see how these tools that we use, the tool of writing that we use, no matter how we use it, it's not it's not like a surefire guarantee. It's not like a quick fix. It's not a pill that you take that makes everything amazing. It's a tool that you use just like any other tool, just like therapy, like yoga, like 
breath work, like meditation that helps in so many ways. And it's not the end all be all. It's not the only tool that you use. And it also doesn't give you total control over your circumstances. Nothing does. We don't have total control over our circumstances. So I want I wanted to just share this whole story with you transparently and show you what I did when I didn't get the outcome that I was hoping for. So, okay, I, I'm not going to read my original birth story to you, the prescript story that I wrote, but what you need to know about it is that the whole plan was to give birth as naturally as possible. I was planning to give birth at a birth center. center. I had a doula who was supposed to be with me. I had my husband who was supposed to be with me. I had midwives at the birth center. I was planning to labor in the tub. And I wasn't sure whether I was going to give birth actually in the tub, but I knew that I was going to give birth at the birth center. The story that I wrote out had a lot of elements in it, you know, that I had been learning in this birth class, which talked about like that I stayed positive and confident through the birth, that I was not afraid of what was happening to me, that I could sense what my daughter needed at any given time. The birth story that I wrote out also was like very peaceful, transformative, spiritual, introverted. And as you'll see in just a minute, basically none of the elements of my birth story happened the way that I had wanted them to happen. Oh, one last thing about this birthing class is that the role your partner, your birth partner plays in the birth with you through this birthing class is by reading you these scripts that are designed to trigger the language that you've been using about birth the whole time. So language like, you know, like a wave of peace is washing over you. There are a bunch of different phrases that your partner says to you during the birthing process that are meant to trigger the affirmations and the language that you've been using the entire time to prep you for birth. So that was Matt's role in the birth process. And also my doula, Dana, who's wonderful. And I'm so grateful for her. So Dana and Matt together, that was their role with me there. Okay. So I'm going to walk you through what actually happened. (laughs) First off, I had two weeks of what's called prodromal labor. So my labor would start and stop and wasn't really having an impact on the progression of my birth. So what that looked like for me was I would wake up in the middle of the night, usually around 2 or 3 a.m. I would be having some contractions or as I would call them birthing waves and the they wouldn't ever really pick up. They wouldn't be cons- a consistent distance apart. Sometimes they'd be 10 minutes apart. Sometimes they'd be 30 minutes apart. Sometimes they'd be two minutes apart. They just would kind of come and go, keep me awake in the middle of the night. And then usually around 10 in the morning, they would die off and I would go about my day. So for two weeks before Nella was born, I kept thinking I was going to go into labor at any second. Then fast forward two weeks and on Thursday night, July 24th, I woke up same as usual that morning at 2 a.m. with contractions that this time felt stronger than they had felt before. So I had had, you know, this program of labor going on. I knew what, I kind of knew what to expect. But when I woke up in the middle of the night, I kind of thought like, this feels different. It feels a little bit more powerful. And the contractions seem to be coming about every 10 minutes. But I I really worked hard not to get my hopes up because it had been two weeks of getting my hopes up every single night and then having them dashed when I woke up in the morning that it wasn't it wasn't time yet. So the next morning we wake up, it's a Friday morning, and you know, this is all happening in the middle of the pandemic. And so Matt and I had been 
isolated in our house, seeing next to nobody for probably four and a half months at this point or four months. This was the very first day that Matt ever had plans to leave the house. So he said to me in the morning, do you still want me to go to this meeting? Because I have a meeting that, I, that I'm supposed to go to. It's going to take a couple of hours, but I can skip it if you feel like you're about to go into labor. And I'm like, no, no, don't do that because I don't want to, you know, we've thought I was going to go into labor for two weeks and it hasn't happened. So you just go ahead and go to your meeting. You're 30 minutes away. I'll text you if anything happens. This is not going to happen fast. It's going to be very slow. So I kind of kept him in the loop via text all day. My contractions were 10 to 20 minutes apart all day, and they didn't really seem to be getting much more consistent or any closer together. At around three o'clock, I texted Matt because my contractions started coming a little bit closer together. They were more like five or six minutes apart. So he gets on the road, comes home, gets home around four o'clock. By the time he got home, my contractions were consistently coming at five to six minutes apart. And I was using all of the strategies from the birthing class. I was talking about birthing waves. I was like, you know, there are these little meditation tracks that you can listen to. So I was listening to the meditation tracks. I was, you know, doing my breathing exercises. I was actually feeling pretty good. I was feeling pretty confident. Matt called our doula, Dana, and had her come over to the house. So she gets on the road. She's like, you know, in LA traffic, probably 40 minutes away. We're just kind of all taking our time. Nobody's rushing anything yet. Dana gets to the house around five o'clock. And at the point that Dana arrived at the house, the contractions were actually coming much closer together. I was having contractions probably, I don't know that I was doing a great job of timing them because I wasn't sure if you were supposed to start from the minute the contraction starts. And I wasn't sure exactly how to do it. Or if you wait till the contraction's over. But come to find out, it's actually, you start timing when the contraction starts and then start timing again when your next contraction starts. So at this point, my contractions were two to three minutes apart, meaning my break between contractions was only about a minute or a minute and a half. So Dana said she recommended that we go ahead and call the midwives. So that's what we did. We called the midwives. At first, I think all of us, all of us in the room and the midwives were all a little bit skeptical about whether or not I was really going to actually go into active labor because it had been so many stops and starts for so long. So the midwives told me at first, it's probably going to be a while, maybe take some Benadryl, go back to sleep, see if you can get some rest. So we hung up the phone and... I was within minutes of hanging up the phone. I was like, no, no, no. Well, I cannot take Benadryl. <laughs> I have to go. You guys need to take me to the birth center. I don't know what, what's happening, but I feel like I'm in active labor. So we call them back, make a plan to meet them there at six o'clock. Right now it's like 5.30. The birth center is five minutes away. So I'm just kind of biding my time, breathing through these contractions Finally, we pack everything up, make sure we have the birthing bag. We we had made, I had made this like really yummy, delicious stew to eat after um, I gave birth. And so um, grabbed the container of stew, grabbed the birthing bag, got in the car, drive to the birth center, arrive at the birth center at six o'clock. And at this point, this is when I'm really starting to feel the contractions, um, like I'm, I'm feeling like I'm becoming overwhelmed by them a bit, but I'm moving from the car into the birth center. I get into the birth center and the first thing they do is take all of your readings. So they take your blood pressure, they check your dilation. There are a couple different things that they do. 
And um, right away, I kind of knew something wasn't right. I get into the birth center. They take my blood pressure. And I can't even see the blood pressure read later. My husband told me that the first blood pressure reading was 180 over something. So the, the midwife is like, well, that can't be right. Let me do a manual reading. So she takes a manual reading, a second reading, and she doesn't even tell us what the read was on the second reading. She just leaves the room. So she leaves the room. She's gone for a couple minutes. My doula says, I think she's concerned about your blood pressure. Meanwhile, I'm having contractions. So then the two midwives come back in the room and they explain to me that my blood pressure reading is too high. It's not safe for me to give birth at the birth center. So I'm going to have to change plans and we're going to have to go to the hospital. And, you know, this might seem like a small thing, but for me in the story, this was a huge turning point because a couple of reasons. Number one, because we're in COVID times, I knew that the hospital meant a few things. Number one, I knew it meant my doula couldn't come with me. So Dana, who had been with me through the whole pregnancy process, and she had taught the birth class I was part of, and we had done birth rehearsals together, and she had been there with me when I was first laboring, and she had been my person who I reached out to, who supported me through the whole pregnancy. I knew because of COVID rules, she wasn't going to be able to come to the hospital with me. So I was really disappointed about that. Number two, I knew that because of COVID rules, my husband was not going to be able to come up to the labor and delivery room with me right away. He was going to have to go through a health inspection. And I wasn't sure exactly what the requirements were, but I knew that if he didn't pass the health inspection, he wasn't going to be able to come up at all. And this had been exactly what I was trying to avoid by giving birth at the birth center. So I am having contractions coming to the realization that, you know, my husband and my doula, Dana, are not going to be able to come to the hospital with me. And then I also have this like flash of fear that had never occurred to me before that it was possible that my health or safety or the health or the safety of my baby might be at risk. It just had not crossed my mind that that might be a possibility in childbirth for whatever reason. Maybe you can call me naive or whatever, but it was not top of mind for me. I had um, been doing affirmations with the birth class that talked about how birth is natural, normal, healthy, and safe. And so I had been rehearsing that to myself over and over again, and I really felt confident that birth was those things, natural, normal, healthy, safe. And now that I'm faced with going to the hospital, I just felt this wave of fear and dread come over me, and I really lost control of my mental um, uh, my, my mentality at that point. I don't know how else to say that. I lost control of the mental control that I had had before. And now my contractions are coming every two minutes apart. I feel like I'm about to push this baby out of me. <laughs> and I was actually only one centimeter dilated or just a little more than one. So we leave the birth center. And also, I mean, thankfully, everything is very close together. But the other thing that um, we didn't plan for was I had packed for the birth center, not for the hospital. And even though some things are similar, the birth center wasn't going to keep us overnight, whereas the hospital keeps you overnight. And now that we're going to the hospital, I actually don't know if I'm going to be able to have a vaginal birth anymore. I just hadn't thought through what would happen if we were sent to the hospital. I didn't have that stuff packed. And, you know, we had made this food 
that we would eat after we were done, um, after after I had given birth at the birth center, that I couldn't take with me to the hospital. I couldn't bring it in. There was nowhere to keep it. So we had to run back home, drop off the food, drop off a couple of things, pick up a couple of other things. Meanwhile, I'm laboring as we're doing this, and then drive to the hospital. And Matt is driving, you know, faster, faster than I've ever seen him drive, I think, to get us to the hospital as quickly as possible. Meanwhile, I'm just writhing in pain in the back seat. I couldn't even sit in the front seat because I was in so much pain. And I actually, I made a joke, well, not a joke. I were driving to the hospital and I'm in, you know, like just focused on getting through a contraction and at a break in contractions. It's right around sunset at this time. So it's golden hour in LA. It's absolutely beautiful. We live in Pasadena. The mountains are this, you know, amazing backdrop and the sun is setting and I'm just like, you know, crying and in pain. And I'm like, California really is a beautiful place to live, isn't it? (laughs) But we arrive at the hospital around, I think, 7.30. And I get wheeled up to labor and delivery. And sure enough, Matt's not allowed to come with me. So he stays with all of our stuff and he waits. They make him wait. They won't even let him come into the... (laughs) the irony he wouldn't they won't let him come into the waiting room so he has to wait outside the doors of the hospital until i'm admitted and i don't have any idea how long that's going to take but i'm not even focusing on that at this point i just get wheeled up to labor and delivery floor i get put into a room they ask me to change out of my clothes and into a hospital gown and they sort of send me in or or direct me into this little bathroom inside the hospital room. And I was so out of it and so not caring that I literally just stripped down and put the hospital gown on in the middle of the room with everybody walking around me. Cause I'm like, what do I care at this point? I could care less about changing in front of strangers when I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling. And people are coming in and out of the room. Um, I didn't know this, but the midwife, one of the midwives had said to Matt when we left the birth center, she said, if this continues for your wife, um, get her an epidural because this isn't normal. And I don't think any of us really knew what was going on at that point, or maybe the midwives did and they just didn't tell me. Um, but I definitely didn't know what was going on. I just thought, I guess this must be what childbirth feels like. And I know it's very different for every woman, but I was definitely having a harder time managing the sensations I was feeling than I expected to at that point in the delivery process. So I think I expected to feel like this when I was, you know, getting ready to push, but I didn't expect to feel like this when I was one or two centimeters dilated. And I was having a hard time imagining how I was going to stick with it for another eight or 10 or 12 or 15 hours or whatever you know, it was going to take. So I'm in the labor and delivery room. I have a whole bunch of nurses standing around me talking about me, but not necessarily to me. All of them are, are, um, recommending different positions that I can get in. They're all trying to, you know, try different things to keep me comfortable. And one thing that struck me at this point that I didn't know what to do with yet is they, started asking questions about my sexual history, about my safety at home, about uh, any abuse that I had experienced in my life. They also took blood and 
sent it off to the labs. Um, and I wasn't, I don't think I was tracking well enough to really know like, you know, what they were checking for. But thankfully, about an hour later, around 8.30, there was a woman who arrived on shift named Jessica, who was one of the midwives at the hospital. And Jessica was like an angel sent straight from heaven. She was the first person to really pause and look me in the eye and talk to me about what was going on with me. So she's the first person to tell me that I had preeclampsia. She also told me that the reason that they were asking questions about whether or not I felt safe at home and my sexual history was because I had some, what looked like some scar tissue on my cervix that was, she guessed that that could possibly be what was making it difficult for my cervix to open, even though my contractions were so strong. So essentially what she told me was the reason that you feel like you're in full blown active labor labor is because you are the baby's at zero station, meaning her head's like right down in my pelvis. It's pushing on my pelvis. You're having these super intense contractions. They're coming consistently two minutes apart. You're only getting a 30 second break. You're a hundred percent effaced. And for whatever reason you're, you, and, and if you aren't familiar with childbirth and you don't know what any of those things basically just means like your whole body is ready to go and give birth to this baby, except that your cervix isn't opening. So that's why you're in so much pain. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm FaceTiming with Matt, who's standing out on the street, dying to come up to the room, and he isn't able to. My phone is about to die. His phone is about to die. So eventually, we have to hang up the phone because I don't have a phone, a charger cord long enough. By the way, pro tip, if you're going to the hospital, bring a very long charger cord because I didn't have a charger cord that was long enough to reach the phone from the hospital bed. And I needed my phone to have at least enough power to text him when they finally admitted me so that he could come up. So Jessica walked me through what some options were. She said, I know that you were hoping to have a natural birth, a natural childbirth. And I want to honor that and respect that. She said, also, your cervix isn't responding to these contractions. And I I want to talk about what we could do to help you relax so that your cervix has a better shot of opening so that you don't have to suffer this much for so long. There's no point, she said, in you suffering like this. So she said, we can talk through some pain management options and we don't have to jump straight to epidural. There are a couple different things we could try. She recommended that we could start with a morphine drip. And honestly, by that point, I was so, you know, I had been since probably four o'clock had been laboring pretty pretty actively. And, you know, since six, when we got to the birth center, I had been in a a lot of pain. And so I was really ready to say yes. I was like, yes, give me the morphine drip. Where, where do I sign? So I will sign on the dotted line. Here's my, here's my best vein. (laughs) Um, I was really ready for that. Uh, so I get a morphine drip in order to give me the morphine drip. I was officially diagnosed with preeclampsia which also, by the way, if you aren't familiar with preeclampsia, it's not surprising. I wasn't either. And I actually had done zero reading about preeclampsia before I gave birth. Eclampsia is seizures. So preeclampsia is pre-seizures. And preeclampsia is one of the most common ways that mothers and infants are killed in childbirth is through preeclampsia. So it's a really dangerous condition. And uh, I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that it wasn't good and that it was part of why I was in as much pain as I was. But the diagnosis 
as well as the IV for the morphine drip meant that I had to be admitted, which meant Matt could come up. So almost at the exact same time while I was getting the morphine drip, Matt came up to the room. Thank goodness. So I, at, that was at like 10.30. So I labored for like three hours, three and a half, three, yeah, three hours, I think, without Matt. Um, as soon as they gave me the morphine drip, I'll say the number one thing that the morphine did for me is it lowered my inhibitions enough for me to say what I actually wanted, which was an epidural. It was the first thing I said. Well, actually, the first thing I said when they gave me the morphine drip was I, it felt like I'd had two or three glasses of wine is what it felt like at first. So I was like, it's been so long since I felt like this. It's been 10 months since I've had any mood altering substances. And I don't know why I said it that way, but Matt was just laughing. He was like, people are going to think that we're like doing drugs at our house, which we are not. (laughs) But then the second thing I said was, I want an epidural. Matt said to me when he heard me say that, he was like, we can get you an epidural if you you know, whenever you, you say the word, basically, whenever you want an epidural, we'll get you an epidural. We don't have to make that decision right this second, if that's not what you want to do. I ended up laboring for about four more hours on the morphine, tried to sleep. I was still contracting every two minutes, which again, I'll remind you, this means I had like 30 seconds of a break between these contractions that were, I was calling them. They asked me on the pain scale, what, from one to 10, what I would call it. And I was calling them a nine only because I wanted to reserve the 10 for the pushing. (laughs) But it was definitely the most intense sensation I've ever felt in my life. Around 2 a.m., I finally just said, I I give, I can't do this anymore. I want an epidural, especially since I wasn't progressing. I, I was barely progressing. I think I was maybe at two centimeters by the time that happened. So at 2 a.m., I got the epidural. The epidural did help me to progress. I slept from two to six. At around 7 a.m., they checked me again. I was seven centimeters. The midwife on call, uh, well, no, this was Jessica. She asked if I wanted to break my water. I said yes. So they went ahead and broke my water. Then at 8.30, I was eight centimeters. So that worked. It did exactly what we were hoping it would do, which was to progress my labor a little bit more. And at 8.30, this is when things got interesting. At 8.30, they checked me again and I was at eight centimeters. I didn't pick up on this at the time, but looking back, I can see how this is the moment when the midwives and the doctors on duty started to get a little bit nervous. The first thing that I noticed looking back is that they wanted to move me along even faster. So once I hit eight centimeters, the midwife actually said to me, I'm going to see if I can you know, tease your cervix open a little bit more so that you can go ahead and start pushing, which I had just never heard of that before. I didn't even know that that was a thing. So she did that. And sure enough, within a matter of minutes, I was at 10 centimeters and ready to start pushing. The second thing I noticed is that as I was pushing, they um, said two things that had to do with oxygen. Number one, they were going to put me on oxygen because they told me that They wanted to make sure Nella was getting, uh, they didn't know her name. They wanted to make sure my daughter was getting as much oxygen as possible. And the second thing is that they had a respiratory therapist come into the room. And they told me this was standard protocol, which I am thinking maybe it wasn't. And they they just told me that because they didn't want to scare me. So they had a respiratory therapist come into the room who said she was just going to be there to check on my daughter as soon as she was born. I'm taking the oxygen and then... You know, like I said, I pushed for 20 minutes and at nine, 
39 is when Nella was born. At the very end of the pushing, they said to me, we really want to get her out on this push because we want to make sure she's getting enough oxygen. So that clued me in to the fact that we were in a bit of a rush. So I did the best I could, pushed her out. They put her on my chest for not even 30 seconds. And my first impression was that she wasn't doing well. She wasn't breathing very well. She wasn't breathing on her own. She wasn't crying. She was laying totally still. So they took her from me after about 30 seconds and they took her to a table over on the other side of the room that I was in. The respiratory therapist and the nurses were all trying to get her breathing. She just wasn't doing a great job of breathing. So then within a few minutes, they took her directly to the NICU. So all of this was a whirlwind, but within a few minutes, I had given birth and I still hadn't seen my baby. So they took her from the room. They took her to the NICU. This is exactly what you would want the nurses and doctors to do. They're doing what they're, they're doing their job. They're taking care of her. But for the next two days, 48 hours, a couple of things happened. Number one, because of the preeclampsia, they put me on a magnesium drip, which um, I don't know them. I don't, I don't know enough of the medical details to explain to you what exactly is going on. I just know that the magnesium drip helps to keep your blood pressure low because my blood pressure was not coming down on its own. So they put me on a magnesium drip, which they warned me makes you feel nauseous and can sometimes make people um, vomit and just in general makes you feel kind of gross. And now I, I didn't have particularly bad side effects from the magnesium drip, but they, they put me on the IV drip. They took Nella to the NICU. And because of the IV drip, they told me a couple of things. I wasn't allowed to leave the hospital bed. So I wasn't allowed to go see Nella in the NICU. I wasn't allowed to eat because of the potential for nausea and vomiting. And I wasn't allowed to eat any solid foods. So I'm cooped up in this hospital bed. I don't get to see my baby. (laughs) I don't get to hold her. I don't get to have this like precious skin to skin moment with her when she comes out. I can't eat anything. As soon as the epidural wears off, I'm in a lot of pain. And I had a really hard time, again, this was another moment when I had a hard time maintaining a positive mindset about what was going on because I had worked so hard and I had sacrificed so much to get to this moment and then I don't get to have her in my arms and I'm still waiting. So to add insult to injury, (laughs) even after the two days of waiting, somewhere in the course of those two days, and I can't remember exactly when, we found out that Nella was not only going to be in the NICU for two days, she was going to have to stay for a week because she had some sort of unexplained infection in her body that they needed to treat with antibiotics. So they give her antibiotics, they start treating the infection, the unexplained infection. I didn't know what this was. And I know now that I'm going to be released from the hospital and she is not going to be released with me. So I'm absolutely devastated. In fact, One of the most poignant visuals or memories or like pieces of this whole story that really stuck with me was the feeling of driving home from the hospital and then walking up to my house without my daughter. The reason I say this, the reason I pull this out is because there are some things you can do with a writing exercise around a moment like that in the story to help kind of soften the blow or 
round out the edges so that it doesn't feel like quite such a sharp pain when you have something like a moment like that in your story that feels still really sharp. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But that feeling of coming home without her was really, it was terrible. It was maybe one of the worst parts of the whole process. You're starting to see the discrepancy between the story that I wanted to happen and the story that actually happened. And this is just another layer of that. I had read this book called The First 40 Days, which I still recommend to anybody who is giving, you know, um, in the process of pregnancy or giving birth. It talks about the importance of after childbirth, really hunkering down for what they're now calling the fourth trimester with your baby and taking great care of yourself and having other people take great care of you as the mother who just went through this really life-changing and intense experience of childbirth, taking care of yourself through the foods that you're eating, through making sure that you're not being too active and taking care of yourself emotionally because it can be a roller coaster physically, mentally, emotionally. So taking great care of yourself so that your healing can happen much quicker than for a lot of women, their healing ends up getting dragged out. And the book walks you through this approach. And as with the many other parts of my birthing process, I had a whole plan for how I was going to handle the first 40 days after birth. And because Nella was in the NICU and because of the way that the COVID requirements affected NICU rules, I just was not at all able to do what I had planned to do in the first 40 days after her birth. So the the rule in the NICU was that only one parent could visit per day. So that meant it had to be either myself or Matt, my husband, that went to the NICU that day. And there were a certain amount of hours that were visiting hours that you could stay But if I were to go and visit for an hour, let's say in the morning, then that day was my day and Matt couldn't come at all that day. It had to be only me, which meant that for me as a postpartum mom, if I went, if I wanted to go to the NICU at all to nurse or to see her, I had to plan to stay the whole day or I had to forfeit the amount of hours that my daughter would have a parent in the NICU that day. So that meant that I had to do a lot of getting out of bed when I wasn't really ready to get out of bed, getting in the shower, getting dressed, getting in the car, driving across town, going to the hospital and sitting in the NICU for eight hours at a time to just be there and spend time with her. The environment in this particular NICU was not friendly to postpartum, a postpartum mom. So I was sitting on a very uncomfortable chair. I wasn't allowed to have food in the NICU. I, they did allow me to have water, but there wasn't any place to refill my water. There wasn't any place to wash my pump parts. I was just like barely learning how to pump. You know, I really needed to be at home in bed. I needed to not be pushing myself physically so much. I asked for a wheelchair at the hospital and they wouldn't get me a wheelchair. They said that, you know, they didn't think I needed one. I needed to be resting much more than I was resting and I wasn't able to do that. So because of that, then the recovery process ended up lasting much longer than I think it does for, you know, the average woman. All of this to say, on day seven of Nella being in the NICU, we were able to drive over there. They released her from the NICU. She 
was thriving. The antibiotics completely cleared up whatever infection was going on with her. And it was the best day of my life getting to drive home and bring my daughter with me. But all of that said, from the start of this process to the finish, just nothing went the way that I wanted it to go. And that's one thing to cope with. But on top of that, to say that, you know, these plans that I had put in place were completely blown out of the water. And then there were a couple of moments along the process that felt not only really painful, but also traumatic. So I wouldn't call the entire experience traumatic, but there are a couple moments that I would call traumatic. Like for example, when she was first born and they took her from me immediately so that they could take care of her breathing, that felt really traumatic to me. And then driving home from the hospital without her felt pretty traumatic. So what do you do when you have an experience like this where you want your life to go a certain way and you even do all of this work to get it to go that way or you want to get a certain outcome and you work really hard to get that outcome and then you don't get the outcome that you were hoping for? And what do you do when you have an experience in life that, you know, like giving birth to Nella and having her taken from me immediately and I'm not allowed to see her or hold her for two days that feels really traumatic and it's it's almost like it's lodged in your brain. It's not almost like it is. It is. It's lodged in your brain as this traumatic experience. And, you know, you can't seem to make peace with it or come to terms with it. There are a lot of different ways that you can use writing as a tool to round out the edges of these experiences so that they don't stay in your brain as trauma, so that you can reframe them the same way that I tried to frame my experience from the beginning, even though it didn't go the way that I wanted it to go, I can reframe the experience now so that this doesn't end up being a bad memory in my that stays with me in my brain. So in the beginning of an experience like this, depending on the gravity of the trauma for you, if it feels really challenging to write about it or to put it into words or even to imagine putting it into words, it probably means that the experience was rather traumatic for you and you're still processing it, processing it emotionally. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The second thing I want to say is wait for the invitation to write about it. So to start putting this into words and the invitation might come slowly, but the invitation might just feel like I really want to start talking about this, or I really want to start putting some words to this. People will tell me things like, I just couldn't not write about it, or I want to get that down so that I don't forget that. Or I want to write down the way that I said that because it feels really important. So wait for that invitation to write things down. And when the invitation comes, Know that you don't have to worry about things like structure or grammar or complete sentences or anything like that. Because again, our ability to process things verbally tends to match our ability to process them emotionally. So you're going to start out wanting to process with just a single word here or there, or maybe a couple of words strung together, or maybe a bullet point list. For example, the first thing that I did with this story was just literally go through and list out all of the things that happened in the process in a bullet point so that I wouldn't forget them, so that I could understand the timeline, so that I could remember the, the exact times that things happened, et cetera, et cetera. When you're ready to start processing, you can do your best to start writing down words that reflect the facts of the situation. 
So the things that actually happened, your thoughts about the situation, so the story that you're telling yourself, and then your feelings about the situation, so the feelings that you have in response to the the story that you're telling yourself. Let me give you a quick example from the birth story. As I'm driving home from the hospital, one of the midwives from the birth center, Rebecca, calls me to check in on how things were going with Nella and see if she was out of the NICU. I explained to her that Nella was going to have to be in the NICU for a week, and she asked me how I was feeling. I said I was feeling really emotional about driving home without my daughter. And she said to me, I want you to know that you didn't do anything wrong. And immediately when she said that to me, she said, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything to bring on the preeclampsia. There wasn't anything that you could have done to change this situation. And there isn't anything that you did that made this situation occur the way that it did. And immediately when she said that, I felt myself feel like uh, I, I talk about a charge moving through your body. It felt like an emotion has a charge to it. I felt myself feel a wave of sadness or relief or it felt like what she had said with her words really touched on something for me. So what that told me was that one of my thoughts about this situation was that if only I had done something different, if only I had tried harder, if only I had been more dedicated to listen to my meditation tracks, if only, if only, if only I could have made this go differently. I didn't know that I was telling myself that story. I didn't know that was a thought that I was having. I wasn't conscious that I was having that thought, but clearly I was having that thought because it felt like such a relief for her to tell me this wasn't your fault. And I also felt myself go like, are you sure that this isn't my fault? So that's one way that you can, I say that to give you an example of how you can know that that's a story that you're telling yourself. And it's a place where you can linger in the writing process to see where did that story come from? And how can I rewrite that story for myself? Because obviously this whole memory is going to be far more traumatic for me to hold on to if I'm thinking I caused this for my daughter and myself versus this was just something that happened to me and now I have to process you know, what occurred. Which leads me to the second thing I'll tell you, which is I had a friend named Brittany who did a similar birth class And she said one of the things that would really get to her after her experience was when people would ask her, so did it work? She said what she felt like people meant by that was, were you able to have a natural birth? And, you know, in her case, similar to mine, she also had an epidural, so did I. The plan was to have a natural childbirth. And then I had a morphine drip, I had epidural, I had my water was broken, various interventions along the way. And she said to me that she felt like people were asking the wrong question. Did it work? The question really is, did you feel empowered by your birth experience? And if you rewind all the way to the beginning of this, what I really, really wanted out of this experience, there's a lot of details to what I wanted. I wanted to give birth at the birth center. I wanted to have my doula there. I wanted Matt to be with me the whole time. I wanted to give, I wanted to labor in the tub You know, all these things that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. But what I really wanted is I wanted to feel empowered by my birth experience. I wanted to walk away feeling like this wasn't a traumatic experience. This was a transformative experience. It was a spiritual experience, something that I'll remember and cherish for the rest of my life. And the reason I bring that up now is because 
if I can use writing as a way to reframe, to process, to recatalog all of the things that happened in my birth experience, then what ends up happening is I get exactly what I wanted. Not because I gave birth at the birth center, because I didn't. Not because my doula got to be there, because she didn't. Not because you know Matt was with me the whole time, because he wasn't. But because I can feel empowered by the fact that I did this, that despite everything that went a different way than what I, than the way that I wanted it to go, that I get to decide how I want to tell this story to myself. I get to decide how I want to remember it. And because of that, I get to feel confident and empowered by, um, by the way that I've handled the entire thing. So what does this mean for you? The reason I'm telling you all of this is not necessarily because I think you're super interested in my birth story, although there might be a handful of you who are. The reason I'm telling you this is because for you, whether it's a birth story or whether it's a complicated relationship or breakup that you went through, maybe it's a relationship that you're still in that you're not sure what to do about. Maybe it's a loss that you've had that's inexplainable, inexplicable. Maybe it's COVID. Maybe it's the pandemic that we're still all living through. Maybe it's the election season and the anxiety that comes with that. Whatever it is, the question isn't, can I control reality? Because you can't. There's no way. The question is, can I feel empowered in the way that I handle myself in this experience? And the answer to that is yes, you absolutely can. And you can do it through the power of writing things down. You can do it by processing what you're thinking how you're feeling about the things that are happening to your in your life to you in your life and you can do it by altering the story that you're telling yourself to make it a better stronger more compassionate story so there's a lot more to say i have to go ahead and wrap up we're already at about an hour for this episode i hope you've enjoyed this little bit of a different format i hope you've enjoyed hearing the birth story and i hope that you'll stay tuned not only here but also on our website at findyourvoice.com. I hope you'll stay tuned on the Instagram um, page for Find Your Voice, which is Let's Find Your Voice. I hope you'll stay tuned at my Instagram, Allie Fallon, for more ways that you can continue to use writing as a way to feel more empowered in your experiences in life. And ultimately, I hope you'll pre-order a copy of my book called The Power of Writing It Down, which walks you through a process that you can use over and over and over again that's completely free and accessible and easy to use so that you can do the same thing that I'm doing with this birth experience, which is to take a really complicated, challenging, nuanced, difficult experience and to metabolize it for your own confidence for your own positivity and for your own growth. Thanks for listening to the find your voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple podcasts. And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.